Thanks, Paulette. The kids, you are dismissed to go back to the kids program. My wife and son are running the kids program this morning, so I've promised to keep the sermon very short as a result of it. If you've got your copy of God's Word, turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start reading in verse 6. If you've been with us the past couple weeks, you'll know that we've been looking at uh, 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 the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. When we're all said and done, it'll be Genesis 1 to 11. And we're looking at how these chapters answer some of the most profound and ultimate questions that life presents to us. Uh, The first question we looked at is, how did the world begin? And we saw that in the beginning, God spoke the world into existence, and it happened. We've seen what God is like. That's a profound question. We've seen that He's eternally preexistent, that He's creative, He's beautiful, He's ordered, He is the source of all good things. Last week, we wrestled with the question, what is humanity? And we saw that we are creations of a benevolent creator who deserves our submission and our worship. And in the process of that, we asked ourselves, what is our purpose as human beings? And we saw that we're created in the image of God. We're tasked with stewarding the creation around us of creating culture and that we were made to be in relationship with God and to be in relationship with each other. And so this morning, I want us to look at our passage and consider two other ultimate questions. Um, And those questions have to do a lot with pain and with suffering and ultimately with the nature of truth itself. And to do so, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 6, and I'm going to read uh, through verse 24, which is the last verse of the chapter. Starting in verse 6, Genesis chapter 3. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. Out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reached out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard passage to preach from, Lord. Uh, Probably one of the most, if not the most, saddest chapters in all of the history of redemption. And yet, it's important for us to understand what's going on here, so we pray that your Spirit would come and enlighten our hearts to the truth of your Word this morning. But I pray that it wouldn't just be knowledge, but it would be something that seeps deep into every part of us, as your Word tends to do, to change us, to mold us more into your image, to help us understand the gospel more. So be with us now. Enlighten our hearts and our minds with this truth. May your Spirit visit us in a powerful way. We pray all this in Christ's name, amen. Well, I don't have to tell you that uh, a quick look at the news, even if you were just paying attention to the news this week, uh, a quick look at the news reminds you probably every day that this world is not what it ought to be. It's not what it ought to be. Uh, We're still figuring out the motives of a shooting spree that happened in a Buffalo grocery store. You probably saw that in the news Uh, We're still wrestling with uh, the realities of the Ukrainian people uh, fighting back the Russians who are seeking to invade their country. Read an article this morning about all the other terrible things that are happening in our world that we're not really aware of because we're so focused on the Ukrainian crisis, but there's other things going on in Afghanistan and the Horn of Africa that are equally as sad and dramatic. Those are things just happening in our world. We know that there's a lot happening just in our midst. The last I checked, there was about 125 homicides already on the streets of Baltimore. And I just read an article before I came here this morning. Five people shot, including a five-year-old boy, just this morning in the streets of Baltimore. These are all things, instances of suffering, instances of pain, often in many ways fueled by anger and hostility and all the things that go along with it. They are part of our everyday lives. But there's also a lot of suffering and pain out there that feel very random or that seem to happen randomly. A couple years ago, nobody would have expected a pandemic, but now we read in the news that the deaths related to COVID have exceeded over one million people just a couple years later. 
There are so many other seemingly random tragedies that happen in life. I can remember uh, Christmas Day 2004. I don't know if you all remember this. We're all opening gifts and celebrating Christmas. You turn on the news and a tsunami, we learn that a tsunami hit Southeast Asia, killing 220,000 people in the blink of an eye. These all feel like random things, and we have random things, car accidents, cancer diagnoses, random things that seem to arrive indiscriminately and unexpectedly. So suffering in all shapes and forms are everywhere all the time, and all of us experience them. There's two things that we know about suffering, two common themes. First is we don't have to go looking for it. Suffering always manages to find us. We don't have to look for it. And secondly, we all have a sense that this is not the way it should be. We all have this gnawing sense inside of us that this is not the way the world should be. Many of you know for several years I've been teaching a course on world religions at a local university, and one of the uh, assignments I give my students is to answer questions about, or or write papers about ultimate questions, and they have to research answers. And one of the questions that they have to wrestle with is this question of why is there suffering in the world? Why do we suffer? Why is there pain in this world? Is there any way to move past it? And I can't tell you how many students come to me after this and say, I always knew there was pain and suffering in the world, but I never stopped to ask the question, why? Why do these things exist? Why are they so common to our world around us? Well, the book of Genesis tells us why, but in the process, it also uh, presents to us the question, what is truth? And that's what I want us to wrestle with this morning. The first ultimate question is this, why is there so much pain in the world? Why is there so much suffering? Well, if you were with us last week, we left Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were in paradise, and it was described in all sorts of magnificent terms. They had a perfect relationship with the created world that was around them, They had a perfect relationship with God, their creator, and they had a perfect relationship with each other. Just imagine that for a minute. Imagine everything in your life working to perfection. That's what made this paradise. It's what made this so magnificent. But with that paradise came boundaries. God gave them boundaries set by him, their creator, and it was really just one boundary, and that was to not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve are presented with a choice. If they obeyed, they would be covenant keepers. They would spend all of eternity enjoying the perfection of paradise. But if they disobeyed, they would become covenant violators and they would surely die both spiritually and physically. Of course, we know from our text, Adam and Eve chose to disobey God's boundaries. They were not content to be just creatures. They wanted to be just like their creator, and the consequences were painful, to say the least. Immediately, they're filled with all sorts of guilt and shame and blame shifting, and all they want to do is hide from God. 
God finds them. He tells Eve that she'll experience pain in childbearing, in childbirth, in childrearing. Her desires related to Adam will lead to pain, and that her offspring, verse 15, will be in perpetual conflict with the forces of evil. Adam will experience pain in his work. He's going to have anxiety. He's going to struggle for survival for himself and for his offspring, verse 19. But perhaps the saddest chapter of all of this is that Adam and Eve become cut off from God. There's a new distance in their relationship, a new estrangement, and they become cut off from the Garden of Eden as well, protected by an angel with a flaming sword, never to go back to paradise. So if the question is, why is there pain in this world? Why is there suffering? Why is the world different from what it ought to be? We come to Genesis 3 and we see this is where it all begins. It begins with mankind's rebellion against God. But as we answer that profound question, believe it or not, we're confronted with another equally important and related question, and that is the question of what is truth? Now, I know initially those two concepts don't seem to really relate to one another, but that becomes the essential question here, what is truth? We are told earlier in Genesis 3, we didn't read this part of the text, but early in Genesis 3, we're uh, introduced to this character called the serpent. And Adam and Eve have to be really surprised by this serpent when it approaches them because this is a talking serpent. None of the other animals could do this, but this is a talking serpent, a talking animal, and we know that this this serpent tempted Adam and Eve. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He says to them, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. What is the serpent doing here? He is getting them to question the truth of God that they had based their lives on previous to this moment. He says, you won't really die. Your eyes actually will be opened. You will be like God. What is he doing? He's telling them a terrible lie, to borrow the kids' stories language. He's giving them, selling them a terrible lie. And in that moment, Adam and Eve choose to reject the truth of God and and instead accept a lie and build their lives upon that lie. Now, the truth is we're not all that different from Adam and Eve because even today, every time we reject the truth of God in our lives, what we do is we embrace a lie, a terrible lie, and those lies always lead inevitably to all sorts of suffering and pain and sadness. You see, the essence of this lie that Adam and Eve believed was that they, at the end of the day, were better off without God. They were better off without Him. They believed that God really, at the end of the day, didn't have their best interests in mind. In fact, that God just probably wanted to stifle their freedom and their independence. And of course, they would find more joy, better joy, If they could live into that independence, they could be autonomous. They felt like God was holding out on them, and they would flourish more if they were outside of God's 
boundaries. Now, the truth is, friends, we fall victim to the same temptation even today. And let me ask you Christians here for just a moment. Christians, do you ever find yourself in a quiet moment? I know I have at points. Do you ever find yourself in a quiet moment where you look around and you imagine how life would be better if, and you just fill in the blanks? Life would be better if. Wouldn't it be easier if I wasn't restricted by all this Christian morality that I have to follow? Wouldn't life be a bit more fun if I could lie and cheat and steal just like everybody else around me? Wouldn't it be great if I could sleep in on Sunday mornings rather than have to go to some worship service? Wouldn't it be easier if I could just step on a few heads of people in order to advance in my career? Wouldn't life be a whole lot easier without the suffering and the persecution that comes from being a follower of Jesus Christ. What are we doing? We're wrestling in our hearts with this question. Wouldn't life be a lot easier without God? Wouldn't it be great if at the end of the day, I could just call my own shots? If you study religion at all, you'll, you'll know that recently there's been this development in which the, the, the greatest description of American faith today is what is called uh, I spiritual but not religious. If you run into people and say, I consider myself to be a very spiritual person, but I'm not necessarily a religious person. If I had a dime for every person that I've heard that from over the past five to ten years, I'd be a rich person because it is the common way people think about spirituality and religion today. They, sing, they say things like this, I want to be considered a spiritual person but I want the freedom to define my religiosity for myself. I get to pick and to choose what works for me. And you hear a lot of things. I love the forgiveness of Jesus. I love the, all the love talk of Jesus. But the suffering and the hardship that comes from following Jesus, I'm just going to set that to side. I'm going to pick and choose what I like about Jesus. And so in the cafeteria of religions, I'll pick what works and I'll pass by the things that don't. Because in this cafeteria, I get to call my own shots. I tailor my religion to what suits my own wants and what suits my own desires. Really, this isn't all that different than what we see in Adam and Eve. It isn't all that different than something you read in the book of Judges. It says in the book of Judges that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the theme of this book. And if you've ever read this book before, it spirals down further and further as you go throughout the book to the point where the, the degradation, the moral degradation and sin is so extreme that even modern readers who read this book blush at how chaotic and, and uh, how awful society had become. That's what happens when everyone does what is right in their own eyes. See, the truth is living independent of God isn't, an, isn't freedom, as the serpent declared, it's actually only a new and worse enslavement, one that brings chaos that leads to all sorts of suffering and pain. And what that means is this. It means that you are actually not your best self when you live according to your own desires. You are not your best self when you chart your own path. You are not your best self 
when you are fully autonomous and independent. In fact, it is quite the opposite. You are your worst self when you pursue after all of these things. You see, the serpent's lie today is the same that it was in the garden. The question is, will you accept the lie as truth, or will you find your truth in God? See, these temptations are nothing new. We find these temptations, obviously, in the garden when the serpent came to Adam and Eve. We find these temptations all throughout the pages of Scripture. But there's actually one other explicit time in the Scriptures where we see these temptations straight from the devil's mouth. We see them in the garden, but we also see them later in the Scriptures, and the context is the wilderness. And where we see them again is in the Gospels, in the temptation of Jesus Christ, whom the Scriptures call our second Adam. If you've ever read the Gospels before, you know that early in Jesus' life, before his public ministry, he is driven into the wilderness. And the Gospel writers tell us that in that moment, in the wilderness, the devil shows up again. This time he comes to tempt Jesus. He tempts Jesus with glory. He tempts Jesus with all the kingdoms. And he even entices Jesus to doubt the truth and the word of God. But in each case, when Jesus is met with those temptations, he doesn't do what Adam and Eve did. Instead, he responds to the lies with the truth of God. And in so doing, Jesus succeeds in the place where Adam and Eve failed. That's why the Bible calls him our second Adam. He is the one who, in the face of temptation and in the lies of the devil, he is the one who obeyed perfectly. And yet later on, he was executed as a criminal, bearing the weight of our sin and our death. What's so beautiful about Genesis 3, as tragic as this chapter is, and I've, I knew this chapter was coming. I knew I was going to have to preach about it. I wasn't looking forward to it. Why? Because it's such a sad and tragic story in the Scriptures. But I knew that even as I preached in Genesis chapter 3 that there's glimmers of hope and beauty here. There's, there's hints of the gospel if you know to look for them, many hints there. The first is that God, even after Adam and Eve sinned, they were hiding, they were trying to fashion garments for themselves, they're hiding. What does God do? God approaches them. He moves toward them in the cool of the day, even though they were running away from them, hiding from God in their shame, God is the mover and he moves towards them. He approaches them. And even as he speaks to them, one commentator said, God's first words to these freshly fallen men and women are all of grace, all of grace, undeserved merit. Adam and Eve, we read, had fashioned clothes for themselves, but those clothes were insufficient to cover their shame and their guilt. So what does God do? God kills an animal and he covers over their nakedness. And even Genesis 3, verse 15, talks about hints about an offspring of the woman who will eventually come and crush the head of the serpent. 
So even in this saddest moment, even in the midst of judgment and consequences over sin, God's grace, His undeserved merit is on display for all of us to see. But that grace doesn't come to full fruition until later. It comes to full fruition in that second Adam, in Jesus Christ, in the offspring of the woman who resisted the temptation of the devil and will one day bring an end to all evil, to all suffering, and to all pain. So what's our response? Well, first of all, friends, it is this. Don't believe the lie. It's just that simple. Don't believe the lie. Autonomy, independence, finding your own path, all those things are just a new enslavement. And so look to the truth of God. Hold fast to the truth of God. Look to Jesus, your second Adam, and experience grace and forgiveness and life as it was intended to be lived from the beginning. But we can't miss always, this is the beginning, Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3, but we, we can't also miss what happens at the end. There's this beautiful scene at the end of the book of Revelation. It actually says this twice in the book of Revelation where our second Adam, Jesus Christ, comes again. He brings consummation to this great plan of redemption. He comes and establishes the kingdom of God once and for all and forever. And twice in the book of Revelation, it says this, that Jesus will come and wipe away every one of our tears. He will intimately come and wipe away every one of our tears. All those tears that we shed because of pain and suffering and sin and all the hardships that we deal with in life, all those tears that we shed, Jesus will come and personally wipe away every single one of those tears. And so look to Jesus, that second Adam. Look forward to the day where he will come and bring an end to all pain and sadness and suffering, where he will wipe away every single tear. I have to close with with words from Romans 8, which beautifully articulate this. Romans 8, verse 12 says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's true. That's the reality, but it's not the end of the story. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Let's pray.